0: section fourteen of mark twain's autobiography this librivox recording is in the public domain read by john greenman old lecture days in boston written in eighteen ninety eight nasby and others of redpath's lecture bureau i remember petroleum vesuvius nasby Locke, very well when the civil war began He was on the staff of the Toledo Blade, an old and prosperous and popular weekly newspaper. He let fly a Nasby letter, and it made a fine strike. He was famous at once. He followed up his new lead, and gave the Copperheads and the Democratic Party a most admirable hammering every week, and his letters were copied everywhere, from the Atlantic to the Pacific and read and laughed over by everybody at least everybody except particularly dull and prejudiced democrats and copperheads for suddenness nasby's fame was an explosion for universality it was atmospheric he was soon offered a company he accepted and was straightway ready to leave for the front But the governor of the state was a wiser man than were the political masters of Kurnar and Petofi, for he refused to sign Nasby's commission and ordered him to stay at home. He said that in the field Nasby would be only one soldier handling one sword, but at home with his pen he was an army with artillery. Nasby obeyed and went on writing his electric letters i saw him first when i was on a visit to hartford i think it was three or four years after the war the opera house was packed and jammed with people to hear him deliver his lecture on Cust by canaan he had been on the platform with that same lecture and no other during two or three years and it had passed his lips several hundred times yet even now he could not deliver any sentence of it without his manuscript except the opening one his appearance on the stage was welcomed with a prodigious burst of applause but he did not stop to bow or in any other way acknowledge the greeting but strode straight to the reading-desk spread his portfolio open upon it and immediately petrified himself into an attitude which he never changed during the hour and a half occupied by his performance except to turn his leaves his body bent over the desk rigidly supported by his left arm as by a stake the right arm lying across his back about once in two minutes His right arm swung forward, turned a leaf, then swung to its resting place on his back again. Just the action of a machine, and suggestive of one, regular, recurrent, prompt, exact. You might imagine you heard it clash. He was a great burly figure uncouthly and provincially clothed, and he looked like a simple old farmer i was all curiosity to hear him begin he did not keep me waiting the moment he had crutched himself upon his left arm lodged his right upon his back and bent himself over his manuscript he raised his face slightly flashed a glance upon the audience and bellowed this remark in a thundering bull voice we are all descended from grandfathers then he went right on roaring to the end tearing his ruthless way through the continuous applause and laughter and taking no sort of account of it his lecture was a volleying and sustained discharge of bull's-eye hits with the slave power and its northern apologists for target and his success was due to his matter not his manner for his delivery was destitute of art unless a tremendous and inspiring earnestness and energy may be called by that name the moment he had finished his piece he turned his back and marched off the stage with the seeming of being not personally concerned with the applause that was booming behind him he had the constitution of an ox and the strength and endurance of a prize fighter express trains were not very plenty in those days he missed a connection and in order to meet this hartford engagement he had traveled two-thirds of a night and a whole day in a cattle car. It was midwinter. He went from the cattle car to his reading-desk without dining, yet on the platform his voice was powerful, and he showed no signs of drowsiness or fatigue. He sat up talking and supping with me until after midnight, and then it was I that had to give up, not he. He told me that in his first season he read his Cust by Canaan twenty-five nights a month for nine successive months. No other lecturer ever matched that record, I imagine. He said that as one result of repeating his lecture two hundred and twenty-five nights straight along, he was able to say its opening sentence without glancing at his manuscript and sometimes even did it when in a daring mood and there was another result he reached home the day after his long campaign and was sitting by the fire in the evening musing when the clock broke into his reverie by striking eight habit is habit and before he realized where he was he had thundered out we are all descended from grandfathers i began as a lecturer in eighteen sixty six in california and nevada in eighteen sixty seven lectured in new york once and in the mississippi valley a few times in eighteen sixty eight made the whole western circuit and in the two or three following seasons added the eastern circuit to my route we had to bring out a new lecture every season now Nasby, with the rest and exposed it in the star course boston for a first verdict before an audience of two thousand five hundred in the old music hall for it was by that verdict that all the lyceums in the country determined the lecture's commercial value. The campaign did not really begin in Boston, but in the towns around. We did not appear in Boston until we had rehearsed about a month in those towns, and made all the necessary corrections and revisings this system gathered the whole tribe together in the city early in october and we had a lazy and sociable time there for several weeks we lived at young's hotel we spent the days in redpath's bureau smoking and talking shop and early in the evenings we scattered out among the towns and made them indicate the good and poor things in The new lectures the country audience is the difficult audience a passage which it will approve with a ripple will bring a crash in the city a fair success in the country means a triumph in the city and so when we finally stepped on to the great stage at the music hall we already had the verdict in our pocket but Sometimes lecturers who were new to the business did not know the value of trying it on the dog, and these were apt to come to the music hall with an untried product. There was one case of this kind which made some of us very anxious when we saw the advertisement. Di Cordova, humorist. He was the man we were troubled about. I think he had another name, but I have forgotten what it was. He had been printing some dismally humorous things in the magazines. They had met with a deal of favor and given him a pretty wide name, and now he suddenly came poaching upon our preserve and took us by surprise several of us felt pretty unwell too unwell to lecture we got outlying engagements postponed and remained in town we took front seats in one of the great galleries nasby billings and i and waited the house was full when de cordova came on he was received with what we regarded as a quite overdone and almost indecent volume of welcome. I think we were not jealous, nor even envious, but it made us sick anyway. When I found he was going to read a humorous story from manuscript, I felt better and hopeful, but still anxious he had a dickens arrangement of tall gallows frame adorned with upholsteries and he stood behind it under its overhead row of hidden lights the whole thing had a quite stylish look and was rather impressive the audience was so sure that he was going to be funny that they took a dozen of his first utterances on trust and laughed cordially. So cordially, indeed, that it was very hard for us to bear, and we felt very much disheartened. Still I tried to believe he would fail, for I saw that he didn't know how to read. Presently the laughter began to relax. Then it began to shrink in area, and next to lose spontaneity and next to show gaps between. The gaps widened. They widened more, more yet, still more. It was getting to be almost all gaps and silence, with that untrained and unlively voice droning through them. Then the house sat dead and emotionless for a whole ten minutes. We drew a deep sigh. It ought to have been a sigh of pity for a defeated fellow-craftsman, but it was not, for we were mean and selfish, like all the human race, and it was a sigh of satisfaction to see our unoffending brother fail. He was laboring now and distressed. He constantly mopped his face with his handkerchief and his voice and his manner became a humble appeal for compassion for help for charity and it was a pathetic thing to see but the house remained cold and still and gazed at him curiously and wonderingly there was a great clock on the wall high up Presently the general gaze forsook the reader and fixed itself upon the clock face. We knew by dismal experience what that meant. We knew what was going to happen, but it was plain that the reader had not been warned and was ignorant. It was approaching nine now, half the house watching the clock, the reader laboring on. At five minutes to nine twelve hundred people rose with one impulse and swept like a wave down the aisles toward the doors the reader was like a person stricken with a paralysis he stood choking and gasping for a few minutes gazing in a white horror at that retreat then he turned drearily away and wandered from the stage with the groping and uncertain step of one who walks in his sleep. The management were to blame. They should have told him that the last suburban cars left at nine, and that half the house would rise and go then, no matter who might be speaking from the platform. I think de Cordova did not appear again in public. End of section fourteen. Old Lecture Days in Boston. Nasby and Others of Redpath's Lecture Bureau. Written in eighteen ninety eight.